Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and join me in, open, join me in opening up a Bible to Mark chapter 14, uh, page 850 on a blue pew Bible if you'd like to follow along there. Uh, thank you to AJ, our creative director, and uh, Megan, our children's director, for working um, together on that video. I think it is a gift for us up here to be able to see actually what happens downstairs when there's the mass exodus out the side door of our kindergartners through um, fifth grade and just what goes in week in and week out down there. Um, and as you can you know, even see in that snapshot, a lot of um, hard work from leadership all the way down to the volunteer level and that commitment we have as a church to bring the gospel to our children each and every Sunday, uh, to see Christ as a center of the scriptures, uh, just as we're doing up here, week in and week out. Um, and I know uh, a lot of you do know, but probably many of you do not know, that each week between our nursery care down uh, the hall and then kids worship downstairs, we need 20 volunteers a week just to um, help teach and shape that ministry. Um, and that's between, again, four nursery rooms and then downstairs, um, 20 people who come in uh, to Grace on a Sunday knowing they are sacrificing their time in here so they can be down there, they can be downstairs uh, to help shape and teach our kids. And just a shout out to um, Robin Van Eypren, who was teaching that last month. We have monthly teams. Um, Robin has been down in that hallway teaching, shaping kids for over 40 years. Um, many than, longer than a lot of us in here have been alive. She's been uh, teaching the gospel to kids, and, um, you know, Megan was just talking to me this past week about the fact that now, uh, due to our numbers in our nursery, she's kind of having to try and figure out how to configure a fifth nursery room, which is a problem because we only have four nursery rooms, and um, that has kind of been a trend for a while here now where we as a church just... Uh, to the praises and glory of God, have been um, experiencing a steady level of growth for a while now. And um, you know us here, Grace, we don't really talk about numbers. We're not consumed by growth. We're not trying to do things just to grow. But at the same time, we want to celebrate what God is doing here uh, just through the faithful work of preaching the gospel, trying to disciple people. He has chosen to bring a lot of new people uh, to Grace to the point where... Um, you know, we are also, while we praise God for that, are starting to feel some of the challenges uh, as it pertains to growth and to space. Um, and you can even kind of look around here in recent months. I wouldn't say it's hard to find a seat, but to be honest, it's much harder than it was six months ago. Um, and ultimately, that's a good thing, but every good problem is still um, a problem. And, and I say that because where we feel in here, they are definitely feeling it in our kids' wings, where they are near at or at capacity. Um, and so I just, um, as a ministry leadership team, we are entering into a season of just trying to discuss, pray, um, discern what are next steps for Grace Church to steward this growth well. And I just, I'm saying that, I'm not announcing anything, there's nothing coming out this week in an email. Um, I I'm really just want you as a church to be praying for us and praying for our ministry team as we kind of entered into what is kind of uncharted territory, at least for me, and kind of trying to see what's smart here, what's a wise decision, how could we be wise in approaching it, um, but also knowing that any decision that is made for Grace Church and our structure and what we do as we expand, uh, that impacts everybody. And so we want everybody to be on board uh, because that will require increased commitment as a church in some ways as well. And so um, it is all of our jobs, not just 
our pastors, elders, and staff, but all of uh, our jobs to just joyfully play a part in what God is doing here. And, and, and in this North Jersey 2019, he is growing a church for his namesake, and he is doing it for his glory alone, and it is our primary desire for people to know Jesus and then grow in Jesus. And so what's the best way we can go about doing that to make disciples? And uh, that's just a season we're going to be entering into. I ask that you be praying uh, for us, but um, really that's rooted in, back to the video, the excitement of what God is doing through our uh, kids' ministry, and that each and every week they are hearing the gospel. Um, uh, boys and girls are responding to the gospel, putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you notice in that video, a lot of the lessons downstairs are taught in a very contextualized way for kindergartners to fifth graders, and that um, the ministry really taps into the fact that children are visual learners. They, they learn with their eyes, not just their ears. And so when we're teaching kids, we don't just want to tell them what to do to be effective. We want to show them so that it kind of sinks in all the more. And I read a study this past week. Who knows how um, accurate it was, to be honest. I didn't do too much kind of digging into it. But it said that about 70% of kids are visual learners. And as people grow up, maybe even if that percentage declines a little bit as people age, I think it's safe to say that all people benefit from visual learning. Like, don't just tell me what to do, show me what to do. And if we, um, as we've kind of marched through this Gospel of Mark for over a year now, we have seen that Jesus is not just telling his disciples what to do. He's not just sitting in a room and like, okay, guys, you got to do this, you got to believe that, you got to live like that. He is showing them. He's doing life with them. He is walking the path with them for three years you think about relationships in your life, if what, what, what you might consider a discipling relationship in the church, where somebody's discipling you, or you remember back to a time where somebody very intentionally discipled you, they weren't just sitting you down telling you things. They were living a life out in front of you that you saw. You might have heard the phrase that in life more is caught than taught. Have you heard that phrase? That people catch more of how you live more than hear what you say. I think that's true in discipling. I think that's true in parenting. I think that's true in the workplace. If, if, if you at one time were an intern or apprentice or a trainee, whatever job you have, you observed, you learned with your eyes as well as your ears. Because God has wired us as visual learners. And so this morning, I say all that to say this, we're going to see Jesus in Mark 14 appeal to visual learners of taking a physical expression to illustrate a spiritual truth. And he is going to introduce the best props in the history of the world, the bread and the cup. It's known often as the Lord's Supper. Some of you maybe heard of it as communion. We refer to it often here as communion. Uh, Many of you maybe heard it first as the Eucharist. But you have these two objects, the bread and the cup, and if you're familiar with church, you've been around church in a while, you kind of hear, I know what that's about, we do communion, we do this, you take the bread, you take the cup, and you kind of know it, you're like, I can turn off to the end of the sermon. Well, not quite. Because now we're actually going to be able to dig into it and see it in the context of Mark as we've been walking through this gospel. Now it's going to come into the story, and we're going to see how does it come about, and what is Jesus' intention for followers of Christ. So follow along. We're in Mark 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. We'll be taking it through verse 25 in the sermon today, but we'll start with just verses 12 to 16. 
And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Three points we're going to make in the sermon today. First, Jesus makes the arrangements. Jesus makes the arrangements. So Mark, again, locates us where we are in Holy Week. It's the first day of unleavened bread, which is Thursday. It's the day in which the Jews partook in what was called the memorial meal. The Passover meal that had very, very precise instructions, not only in how you prepared it, but how you would eat it. And if you've been with us in Mark, you would notice this passage is strikingly familiar to the one in Mark 11, just before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and that he took two disciples, and he said, go into town and find a donkey, and it's going to be tied up there, it's never been sat on before, and bring it to me. And now, once again, Jesus, very precise, making the arrangements. And again, he goes to two disciples who are unnamed. He says, you're going to go into the city. This means Jerusalem. He says, you're going to find a man carrying a jar. Find that man, and then go to the home where he leads you. And you might hear that and go, okay, that's a little vague. Like, Jesus, could you give me a little bit more than that? Um, uh, hair color, is he tall, is he short? Like, what should I be looking for here? Um, but the job of carrying jars in this culture was exclusively done by women. So a man with a jar actually would have been a rare sight. And so he actually is being very specific with this um, instruction. He says, get to this man who brings you to this home and then get to the owner and inquire about the guest room. I think this shows that Jesus had pre-arranged this with the owner at some point because this large upper room would be furnished. It would be ready to go and the disciples would go and begin to prepare the Passover meal. So that's pretty simple, right? So far, tracking this story. But there's something I want to slow down and have us dwell on a moment. Look back in your Bibles and look at that phrase in verse 16. It says, And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them. You know, we've seen throughout Mark, more than any other gospel writer, he's really not into details. He's very abbreviated in his versions of the stories. But when he does provide a detail, he's very vivid and intentional with it. And he's very intentional with that phrase. They found it just as he had told them. It's kind of amazing. No complications. These guys did not head into the city and think, now they got to start improving. Like, I can't find this guy with the jar. Maybe that's the guy. Can we just use a woman with a jar and go to her house? Like, they're not using their kind of gut intuition to try and figure this out. They went into the bustling city of Jerusalem, which, remember, is about a million people at this time, and they found the man with the jar, just as he had told them. Jesus makes the arrangements. He is in total control of all that happens. He does not release these two men and go, man, I hope they find it. There's a lot riding on this meal. It's going to be pretty important. He's not nervously waiting to see if things go wrong. He prepares the way. And he uses steps along the way that include a lot of different people as a means of provision. Like, 
if you were writing this story, if you were just kind of making it up, wouldn't you just say, like, Jesus says, guys, I got it. It's all ready. The meal's already made. It's in this room. Here's the address. Let's go. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, first find a man. And that man's going to lead you to an owner. And to the owner of that house, he's going to lead you to a large upper room. And then you need to start providing and making the meal. There's a big plan ahead. There's a lot coming in the next couple days of Jesus' life. And the disciples are going to be shocked by a lot of it. And this Passover meal is a big deal. But do you notice the next step for these two disciples was what? Find the man with the jar. Whoever these disciples were, they just had to be faithful with that next step. Big job in front of them, but they always had a next step. I think there's something very pastoral there for all of us. You know, one of the things I talk to people week in and week out from our church is, you know what, life is just really overwhelming. Like, there's just so much that can overwhelm us. Like, there's so much we just need to do. There's so much that needs to be figured out. There's so many complications and gray areas, and where do I go here? What do I do there? What's God want me to do here? Like, we just have so many questions. It could be really overwhelming, where we kind of look at what's coming, and we're just worn out. How is this all going to get figured out? And in the midst of all of this, Jesus, just urging you, brother, sister, take the next step. He has a place for you, furnished and ready to go. He is in complete control. He has made the arrangements. All you need to do is take the next step. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Psalm 119, the psalmist writes a very common verse that you've probably heard of since you were a kid, that your word is a lamp unto my feet. You know how much light a lamp provides when you're on a dark path? Just enough to take the next step. And I think this is so much how the Christian life works, because we just don't see everything in full. How often are we just confused what to do next? Like, how is that going to get figured out? That's a big deal. God, what are you going to do with that? We want a spotlight down the path, not a lamp. But he does give us the strength and the knowledge to know what's the next step here. That I need to walk in faithful obedience. And when I take that next step, there'll be another step after that. You know, um, when, you, when a small child is learning how to walk, They'll get to a point where they finally have the confidence and the strength to stand on their two feet, but then they're paralyzed, right? Like it's concrete feet, like they're just standing there, and they just don't want to move at first, and then oftentimes you have a mom or a dad, and somebody's taking a video, and dad's like two steps away, and he's just being like, come on, buddy, come on, just come here, and they're just sitting there like, what do I do now, like deer in headlights, but eventually they'll take that next step. Do you know Why? Not because they think in their one-year-old mind, I got this, I'm going right across the room. They know my daddy's right there and he's not going to abandon me. And the only way a believer will be willing to take a next step is not because I know how this ends and I got this. It's, no, my daddy is right here and he's not going to abandon me. Jesus makes the arrangements. Let's keep going. Verses 17 to 21. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. 
And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes that is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Second, Jesus is not surprised by betrayal. He's not surprised by betrayal. So, so the evening comes, everything happens as was arranged, and Jesus is now in this large upper room with his disciples. And, and when you think of the Last Supper, I just say Last Supper, everyone probably gets a picture in their mind. And I guarantee most of us have the same picture in our mind. Put it up on the screen. That's what most of us probably think about. And contrary to popular opinion, this was not painted by Peter the night of and, and, and passed along. This is a painting in 1495 by Leonardo da Vinci. And we just read the passage. You know what the problem with that painting is? They're in chairs seating at a table. We know in the first century that that was not the setup. They would be reclining at a table that was close to the ground. But either way, now you have a different word picture in your mind. Jesus said something that I think made things really awkward really fast at this meal. Hey guys, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. You know what's most fascinating about that? Is that the disciples do not go to immediate denial. They don't go, no, not me, not me, not me. Like eventually we know Peter will deny it, but they are grieved by this. Like there's, it's not denial. They actually get very sorrowful themselves. Teacher, will it, will it be me? Like there's this self-doubt creeping over all of them. You know what I think that shows, which is pretty powerful? Each of his disciples deep down knew they were capable of betraying Jesus. And then Jesus narrows the field a little bit. He goes, mm, it's one of the 12, one who is sharing bread with me. So a couple things here. One, another reason why that painting is not probably an accurate depiction is that I think you can make the case that it was not just Jesus and his 12 disciples at the Last Supper, but it was a bigger group of disciples and followers, both men and women. We know in the book of Acts there's about 120 waiting in the large upper room for the Holy Spirit. I think you can make the case this is a large upper room that there could have been over 100 people there because he already said, one eating with me will betray me, and then he narrows it down. It will be one of the 12, which I think makes the case that there's more than 12 here. Either way, we don't really know the tone of how Jesus says this, but we do know that he does not get caught off guard. And he will not get caught off guard hours later when he gets arrested. And, and so I don't think he's surprised, but I bet he was still heartbroken by this. It's possible Jesus actually said these words pulling from Psalm 41. It was a psalm of David, which says in verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, listen, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And now the one greater than David is here. And the betrayal that all other betrayals in Scripture foreshadow and look towards this moment. And then verse 21. 
proves to be one of the most profound theological statements in the Bible. I want you to look at it again. Verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here's why I want to just talk about this verse for a second, because this verse, in a single verse, puts forward a truth that is found all throughout the Bible. Here's the truth, that God is sovereign over all things, and nothing happens outside of his control. Got it? And mankind is responsible for their actions. Jesus being betrayed is under the sovereign control of God. As it was written of him hundreds of years earlier, God had sent Jesus to die on the cross and forgive the sins of those who believe in him. As it was written of him, he was foreordained by the Father and he complied. He was not tricked into it. It was for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. That is true. It's in the Bible. And then at the same time, Judas really did betray Jesus on his own accord. He really chose to rebel against him. He's not some robot that God's just pulling the strings. He's, he's, not, he's not having mind controlled by God. He's not going to be able to go before God and be like, well, of course I did it. You planned it this way. I didn't have a choice. I'm, I'm, I'm blameless. This is your fault, not my fault. And so it's really important in the world of theology as a believer to know God is sovereign and man is responsible. And those two truths need to be taken together. And this one verse captures the mystery and truth of it all. Divine sovereignty never cancels out human responsibility. And human responsibility will never cancel out divine sovereignty. The two are taken together. And it should not fall lightly on us that Jesus, even talking about his betrayer, which we saw in the passage last week, we know it's Judas, he shows pity for him. It would be better that he wouldn't have been born because of what's going to happen to him. You see, this is not popular to talk about, but the consequences of betraying Jesus are eternal and they're severe. And Jesus is saying, you almost feel like tears in his eyes. Like if only Judas knew what the consequences were, he would have never done it. It's like Jesus saying on the cross of the very men who put him up there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, there's something here for us. Because you know what's reality? We all have some Judas in us. We have been born with a sin nature, and we rebel against God in sin, and we steal glory for ourselves. And that's not just some. It's not for the non-church people. It's not just for everybody who's not in this building right now. That's every single one of us with your pastor at the top of the list, that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And while sin breaks God's heart, it doesn't surprise him. You know, the reason Jesus says it would have been better that if, if he was never born is not just because he betrayed Jesus. It's not just because Judas betrayed Jesus, because you know what? That's all of us. We all look in the mirror and we have Judas staring at us in, in return. The reason why Jesus said this is because Judas didn't repent. He didn't repent of his sin and seek the grace of his Savior, because it would have been made available to him. 
The difference between the two famous betrayals in Holy Week, Judas and Peter, which we'll see in the coming weeks, is that one led to repentance and one didn't. Not only was Jesus not surprised by betrayal, by Judas's, by Peter's, or by mine, not only was he not surprised by it, but it's because of our sin that he came in the first place to do what we could not do. What's that? What did he do? Great question. Love when you ask questions that I'm about to preach on. (laughs) Let's keep reading verses now 22 to 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Third, Jesus is the sacrifice. So what Jesus does in these verses is a visual embodiment. This is for visual learners. And it's the visual embodiment of what happens when grace meets betrayal. When God's unmerited favor meets wicked rebellion. And it's the bread and the cup that are used as physical objects that reinforce the most profound spiritual truth in the history of the world. So the Passover meal traditionally had four points throughout the meal where uh, the one presiding over the meal would stand up, hold a glass of wine, and explain the feast's meaning at four different times with four different cups. And those four cups were meant to represent four promises that were given to the nation of Israel in Exodus 6, 6, and 7. Right? Because the Passover meal goes back to the Old Testament. We talked about that last week when Moses brought Israel out of the, um, Egypt because he passed over that nation um, in the 10th plague. If they sacrificed the lamb and put its blood on its doorpost, that he would pass over their home. And then that is what led Pharaoh to say, okay, take your nation and leave. Four promises in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. The rescue from Egypt, the freedom from slavery, the redemption by God's power, And then fourth, a renewed relationship with God. Four promises in those verses that then this Passover meal would be presided over in that order. Commentators believe that when Jesus says this, these famous words, it was the third cup. The point in the meal when the host would generally bless the bread and the lamb. And so when Jesus stands up, I imagine the meal is kind of going as planned, and he begins saying these words, but once he begins to talk, he dramatically leaves the script. Piece of broken bread in his hand, he blesses it and then says, take, this is my body. This is my suffering. My broken body in order to deliver you from the bondage of sin. And then he takes the cup in his hand. And do you notice two words in there? He gave thanks. Like, I could preach a sermon just on that. Like, that stopped me in my tracks in the study this week. Jesus stopped, gave thanks for the cup of his own blood being poured out. He gave thanks for unthinkable suffering he's about to go into. Not because he's enjoying the suffering but he is enjoying thinking about what that suffering is going to bring about for men and women who put their faith in him. 
Like amazing grace. How good is our God? He gave thanks. I don't even have a category for that. And he says, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant poured out for many. It's a new covenant, you see. It's, it's similar to the old covenant in that the shedding of blood was needed for the forgiveness of sins, but this new covenant would be an everlasting one. It would be once for all. It would be the blood of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, whenever you read your Old Testament, anytime you come across a promise in the Old Testament, its final fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. But there's one that stands above the rest. I want to read it. You can follow along on the screen talking about this new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is centuries before Jesus came. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the power of the Last Supper, of the Lord's Supper, the elements in the bread and the cup, that in Christ's self-sacrifice, God forgives your iniquity and he chooses to remember your sin no more. This is the offer put on the table for everybody. You know, it's interesting, in the gospel's discussion of this Passover meal, there's never a mention of the lamb part of the meal, which was the most important, the sacrificial lamb. And the reason that you never hear about the lamb being presented in sacrifice is because Jesus himself is the new and better Passover lamb, the lamb that will be slain, whose blood covers those who put their faith in him so that when final judgment comes, God will pass over your sin and render you blameless. You see, Jesus knew that his followers are visual learners. And so he vows to not drink of it again. He vows to not take the fourth cup until he drinks it anew in the kingdom of God. And in the meantime, he did not design this just to be a one-time deal for his disciples to see. He expected that his disciples would continue to break bread together, continually continue to regularly partake in the cup and the bread in remembrance of him until he returns. In order, why? To be physically reminded of a spiritual truth, to be reminded of those four promises in the Passover meal, which now find their, find their final and fullest expression in him. Like church, this is the power of communion today. You cannot overstate its value and its importance in the life of a local church. If you've been around Grace, you know that we reserve the first Sunday of every month to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, but because of where we are in Mark, preaching this sermon, we're going to switch it up because we're not bound legalistically to that. We're going to do the Lord's Supper this morning. In response to this sermon, and those four promises 
should be at the forefront of our minds. You ever ask the question, what do I think about when I have the bread and the cup? Like, what should I be thinking about? Should I feel bad about myself? Should I feel good? Like, how should I even, like, spend those few minutes? Um, Exodus 6 provides four promises for you to dwell on when you hold these elements. And we'll have them on the screen during the time of communion. That you have now been rescued from the enemy. You've been freed from the slavery of sin. The redemption of your soul. And then finally, the renewal of your relationship with God. Those are four good things to think about. And all too often... We allow the time of communion to just kind of pass us by without ever giving any thought to it. Or like at times, it's like the extra part of the service once a month might make it a little longer. So I would encourage you to dial into this very thing that the church has been doing for the past 2,000 years. This is what connects us to brothers and sisters, not only across history, but across the globe today. The Lord's Day, Christians are partaking in the Lord's Supper across the world. And there can just be real beauty in the ordinary faithfulness of breaking bread together. Listen, in a day where church attendance, and let alone church membership, is very much unlike not in these days, Especially under my generations, like, oh, I have to be part of a church, right? I mean, I don't really need that. Um, Not the only reason, but a big reason is the Lord's Supper. To commit to regularly be part of a local corporate gathering of believers because there's something about physically being here. We are embodied people holding embodied elements with one another that you cannot do just sitting at home listening to a podcast, that you cannot do attending a worship service online. And those have their places and they have their benefits. And praise God for technology and we can do it. But we need to be here. Part of a local church. Breaking bread together. Because it's for visual learners. And it's the representation where grace meets betrayal. And when grace meets betrayal, grace wins every time. So what we're going to do is, normally we sing a song in between the sermon and communion, but I'm going to close in prayer, and then we are going to be served the bread. So if you're um, uh, going to be helping to serve, you can head to the back now, and then we're going to, uh, everybody is going to, we're going to be served the bread together. You're going to hold it, behold it, four promises will be on the screen you could look at. And then we're going to take the bread together, and then we're going to be served the cup, and we're going to take that together, and then we're going to finish our gathering this morning singing in Christ alone. Pretty excited about it. Let's pray.